All right. Um, I have a wonderful sermon that I've been waiting to share for quite a while. I don't know if um, maybe the... Can you hear me well enough? Okay, fine. All right. So um, before we begin, I'd like to... Oh, thank you, Josh. Much appreciated. Maybe I'll just keep it right here. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Thank you. Father in heaven, the expanse and the essence and the substance of who you are is something that we can't even begin to fathom. But this morning, I pray that you will help us to come to a small glimpse of how incredible you are. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so my sermon today is entitled Due North. I'm sorry, God is Love. And if you were to go due north as a pilot, um, it's important that you start out going north. Because if you start veering off just a little bit, by the time you get to your destination, you're not going to be there. So it's important to start the trip out right. Well, I would like to suggest this morning that if you don't understand this concept of God's love, everything else you read in the Bible is going to point you in a different direction. The basic, core, fundamental understanding of Scripture is God is love. There was a story about... Uh, a very nice gentleman post-Civil War, and he loved um, people, just people in general, had a very uh, giving heart, and he was torn by the Civil War of our country. And so when it was over, he wanted to go inspect the aftermath of what had happened in the South. And so he got his knapsack and his suitcase, and he started on this journey with a lot of clothes and, and food. And shortly after he crossed the Mason-Dixon line, he um, found this little boy uh, who was, quote-unquote, a free slave young man. And at that time, they didn't know what free meant, but they knew they were free. And so, loving the, um, the sight of this young man, he offered him an orange. And thinking that he was going to peel it, he kind of looked away and kind of relaxed. And within two seconds, the young man said, wow, this is delicious. He'd never had an orange. And the man looked at him, and he was eating the rind. And so he said to the young man, you think that's good? Wait till you get to the inside. <clears throat> The best he had not tasted. The best he had not experienced. I would like to suggest to us that I would like to take you this morning into the rind of, past the rind of religion and to get to the point where you begin to understand the juice, the relationship with God. Too many of us are satisfied with the rind of religion instead of the juice of our relationship with God. So there is one fundamental thing that I try to get to the kids. 
God is love is the center of what true biblical religion is all about. First John, thank you very much, Caitlin. And by the way, Andrew, wonderful song. Thank you. First John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Notice that born of God. He who does not love does not know God for, for, which means because, because God is love. All human love is only an approximation of its original source, love, which is from God. If we don't love all our fellow human beings, then we can't possibly love God. Why? Because we would be living contrary to the character of God, which, of course, is love. The phrase, God is love, as explained here by John, is really the conclusion of his statement using the word for. For John, everyone who knows and extends Christian love is doing so because love is a godly thing. The entire essence of Scripture is, and if you distill it into the, 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 if you distill the entire Bible into a single idea, is this, God is love. And from that love flows the golden rule, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you are a loving, kind, compassionate, and caring person, then you are born of God. That was the, the uh, right there in the phrase, born of God. <clears throat> if your nature isn't to be kind and loving and caring to people, then you aren't born of God because God is love. <clears throat> what I'm trying to imply here is that no matter what sermon you hear from this pulpit, no matter what you might be reading at home, no matter what others might be telling you, if it does not center on who God is and what kind of God he is in character and nature, then it merely is informational only, but it has no salvational value. This is true of all of us. So what kind of a being are we talking about? I love walking. I love an amazing array of plant-based food. I used to love my dogs till they died. And I love my wife. Now, do those all equate? Well, I, I'll get to my kids. I'll get to my kids. In the Greek language, there were four words for love. In the English, we only have one, love. So there was eros, which is a selfish, and it actually loves the beautiful. There's philia, which is um, more of a uh, family. There is storge, which is more of a broader uh, aspect of that, and, or brotherly, I should say. Uh, philia is brotherly, storge is family. And then the last one is agape, which is selfless. When 
Jesus came upon the scene, they were only using the first three in, their, in the vernacular. Agape was never used because it was a kind of love that they could not comprehend. So when it came to Jesus, he so personified that word that the New Testament writers were able to attribute this word to Jesus and infuse it with the theological understanding that you and I have today. Everything that is true about God is true of him because God is agape. He is selfless, and he imposes his beauty upon those whom he loves. So we can't and don't have to distinguish justice as a separate dimension about God because justice is nothing more than an attribute of God's love. This will become hopefully clearer as we go along. God initiates judgment because he loves, just like parents discipline their children, which is what you do to protect your children, which is kind of what we call tough love. That doesn't sound like my God is what some people will say. Oh, some of the things I read in the Old Testament, well, I have a sermon about that, not today. But there's a sermon that I like to preach looking at all the difficult passages in Scripture that really begin to challenge people's thinking. But I'd like to just give you a brief understanding of what the Bible means by love or agape. It means goodwill, benevolence, esteem, to have a preference for, to wish well, to regard the welfare or the preference of others, to take pleasure in the thing, to prize it above all things, to be unwilling to abandon it or to do without it. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave. So it's self-sacrificing. <clears throat> it's other-centered and it's giving. It doesn't say God lent Jesus. It says God gave Jesus. So we are willing to abandon our favorite foods, but we aren't willing to abandon, as my son reminded me himself, and my daughter and my grandkids. God loves us unconditionally, even if we don't love him, even if we reject him, and even if we disown him, God always will love us. Romans 5.8 says, God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, while we were God's enemies. All right, that's taking it beyond sinners. It's enemies, which is really a, a type of sin. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son Jesus. So God's love defines who he is consistently. God is always consistently love, regardless of any human circumstances. Whether we reject him, whether we fail him, whether we produce evil against him, or any kind of malice, God demonstrates what his love is. And by the way, we don't define God's love. He defines what his love is. Agape is what beautifies the beloved and the unlovely. God never stops loving. He never stops pursuing. He never stops saving, not even if we forever push him out of our life. God always stop, God always pursues. 
God's love always turns to us in the, time, in the kind of loving God, human God always intends us to be. So God always intended us to be other-centered, loving, uh, forgiving, and selfless. And so his love takes our evil hearts and it begins to turn it into his way of living. Love involves choice and it involves risk. When I married Lori, there was a potential that she may not want to stay with me forever. When I decided to have, when we decided to have children, there was a potential that those kids would reject us. And um, it's important to recognize that love, in order to be love, must be able to be freely expressed, and it must be a choice. I did not force Lori to love me. I, she did not force me to love her. <clears throat> if Lucifer didn't have the freedom to voluntarily choose God, then he wouldn't have had a choice. If God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Eden to give us a choice. That is precisely why he put that tree in the garden, was to make sure that we had the ability to choose him. If all you have is one choice, it's either my way or the highway, then that's not a choice. Lucifer made a choice to reject God's universal law of love, and instead, he chose selfishness. Adam and Eve made a choice to disbelieve God and to believe the lies of Satan. Lucifer, Adam, and Eve did so out of their own God-given freedom to choose. If you can't choose to love, then you can never freely love voluntarily. Free will is the only way that you can cultivate and share love. Love can never be forced or coerced. It is only by love that love is awakened. <clears throat> if we as free-thinking beings are truly given the freedom to choose, then there will always be the risk that we will make the wrong choice. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Andrew, what, was that, what were the lyrics in that song? Death cannot be explained, but it must be paid. Is that something like that? Sin, sin I'm sorry. Sin cannot be explained. It must be paid. Thank you. The wages of sin is death. There is no alternative. And it's interesting that in 1 John 3 verse 4, it says, sin is is the transgression of the law. So obviously, there has to be, if you are accused of something or did something, you have to know what you're do doing wrong. Genesis 2, 7, 17 says, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Now that's what God told them. Satan came along in chapter 3 and said, did God really say that? Therefore, unless there was a divine intervention, everyone would die. God said it. The day that you eat thereof, you will die. The wages of sin is death. So, Andrew, I like what you're saying. That was a beautiful song. 
Sin can only be overthrown by a demonstration of love. True agape love, by its very nature, gives and gives and gives and gives and never stops giving. It is selfless. It is never selfish. After the fall, when Satan lied about God and challenged his government of love, his choice led to one-third of the angels being cast out of heaven with him and causing the entire human race to choose Satan over God. Therefore, God knew that the only way to clear up all these misrepresentations about him, his government, and his character of love could never happen by detente or by mediation or simply let's sit down and have a nice chat. God could not stand by and be without any of us for one moment. And because God is love, which is giving and selfless and other-centered and self-sacrificing, Jesus voluntarily demonstrated to the entire universe that he would go to any length to save us, even at the risk of his own eternal loss. I'm going to preach a sermon here in March, uh, sorry, in October, um, and it's on, on death. The pastors assigned certain topics, and I chose death. I've always been fascinated by this topic. To me, understanding the concept of death is one of the greatest, greatest things that we can do because it glorifies the love of God like never before. Jesus considered his life not worth living if it meant living without you. That's the God of this universe. Wow. I... I'm almost teared up because every time I think about that, it's a very emotional thing. Remember in my children's story, I asked the kids about the giraffe and the elephant and the cows and so on. We could all picture what it looked like. But no one could really come up with the description about God. And as if I were to ask all of us here this morning, we would all have some kind of a picture, but it really wouldn't be the same like if I said an elephant or a lion or a giraffe. Nobody here today knows anything about what God looks like. We have no idea about God's nature. As created beings subject to birth and eventual death, when it comes to God, we are trying to comprehend something that is infinitely bigger than ourselves. <coughs> Sin, we sinful humans, oh, I, I guess I forgot to. We sinful humans lack the capacity or the intellect to know what God is. But this three simple word phrase, God is love, is the very beginning point of access to God that we get about him as humans. So remember my little uh, example of the keyhole uh, or the, the the small hole if we were to go up now some of you in this room may not even know what I'm talking about when I say keyhole but 
There was a time in our life, those of us who are older, where there were keyholes and doors. And if you were to try to look, you could just get a very small picture of what was inside. But if your vision is narrowed, you can't see the broad spectrum of things. There's a curtain. Um, it is a perfectly appropriate for us to think that God is veiled from us. This leaves us feeling that he is completely inaccessible to us. What is going on behind that curtain? What kind of being is he? At this point, we have to confess our ignorance. So many passages in the Bible say things like this. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In Exodus 20, in 33, verses 18 to 23, at the very end, Moses said to God, show me your glory. In other words, God, can you show me what you're like? If you read that text, you will see that there were three conditions that God placed upon Moses. Moses had to be placed into the cleft of the rock. God would have to cover his face, and Moses would only get to see the back of God. All of this, in essence, God is trying to say to Moses, Moses, you cannot understand me. The chasm, the distance between the creator God and the created who is us is massively huge. There is such a wide chasm that this simple three-word phrase, we can just barely, barely get a little glimpse through that keyhole, through that peephole, into the axis of what it means that God is love. The edge of our understanding where we end is where God begins. We can't make out much at all, but we can see that something is going on in there. This keyhole that we just looked through is the phrase, God is love. So if you're trying to think about this, as humans, if we're trying to understand God, we're trying to look at him through a keyhole, but that is the starting point. God is love is probably the most essentially profound equivalency for what God is. This is not what he does. This is not how he acts. This is what God is. There are passages in the Bible that say God is merciful. But there is not a verse that says God is mercy. There are biblical passages that say God is powerful. But there is no verse that says God is power. There are passages that say God is forgiving. But there are no verses that say God is forgiveness. At this point, John goes further than all of these descriptions, which are loving and forgiving. And John says, God is. And then he doesn't give an adjective, but rather a noun. Something about the being and nature of God is, is described by this noun, love. 
if the Bible had said God is loving, that would have been easy to believe. Everyone in this room, I dare say, is loving. In fact, there are murderers who I know are loving. They love their wives and their kids. Being loving is hardly a big claim because it can describe a momentary behavior. But John says that the godness that makes God God is that he is love. Love is the thing that God is. That is why you can't preach or teach or read about anything religious or spiritual or biblical without understanding the very nature of God that you are reading and hearing about. There was a series written almost 150 years ago, and it was written over a two-decade period. (coughs) It's called The Conflict of the Ages Series. It is a cursory but somewhat in-depth commentary on the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It has over 3,500 pages of writing. It's one of the most expansive, thorough, and inspiring explanations of the Bible. Here is the opening paragraph of this monumental and brilliant treatise. God is love. Those are the first three words. His nature His law is love. It ever has been and ever will be. Every manifestation of creative power is an expression of infinite love. Oh, friends, if I could just take you to Genesis chapter 1, we could see right there that God loves to create. He loves to communicate and he loves to connect. You'll see all three of those in Genesis 1 and 2. So right at the very beginning, we can see that God is love, and it's expressed in all of these three things. Love has to be creative. Love has to be expressive, and it wants to share what it is. Love longs to communicate. We are wired to be connected for relationship, to create, to love, and to be loved. The reason for this is because God is love himself. Everything that God does is always an expression of his love. This quotation that I just read doesn't say that God's character is loving. It says his nature is love. In the same way that an elephant is big, the elephantness of its nature, in other words, and a giraffe is tall, is just a small microcosm of a representation in the same way that God is love. Again, this is just the keyhole understanding about the picture that we are getting about God. And then here's this last paragraph. It says, the great controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flows life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom 
to the greatest world. All things, animate and inanimate, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. That series begins and ends with God is love. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world perfectly. In Genesis, in Revelation 21 and 22, God restores the world to absolute perfection. But in between, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, we see God doing everything he can to solve the sin problem and bring things back to the way he originally planned. (coughs) And the only way that could happen is by Jesus dying the cruel death in our place in order to give us eternal life. God loves us more than he loves his own life. I don't know why I didn't get a single amen on that. God loves us more than he loves himself. Jesus did that on the cross of Calvary. This is why the entire Bible points to Jesus. Friends, remember my little example last, last time I preached? I put my Bible up here, and I just showed you that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a page that says the New Testament, and I've actually folded it up. I would like to rip it out, but I kind of don't feel like it. There is no Old Testament and New Testament. The Bible is one continuum. The Old Testament points to Jesus, and the New Testament points back to Jesus. The only emphasis to place on any passage of Scripture is through the lens, God is love. That should be our lenses. These my glasses are like a lens for me. And the only way we should look at Scripture is always through this phrase, God is love. We were created by God in love, When we fell, we were redeemed by love. And when we die, we will be resurrected to love. And at the second coming, we will be caught up to him for love. There is no other place to begin or end any biblical study or journey towards God than to realize that God is love. Yes, it's a keyhole. Yes, it's a lens. Yes, it's a foundation by which we are to judge theology and doctrines, and questions about God. If you are going to discuss who God is, and what he is, and how he interacts with human beings, there is nowhere else to begin except by coming to this phrase first. God is love. I want to wind this sermon down with two passages. The first is found in John 5, where we find Jesus giving a commendation and a condemnation against the religious leaders of his day. <clears throat> in John 5, 39, Jesus gives the first compliment, and then he gives a warning. You search the scriptures. That's the commendation. Because in them, in what? In the scriptures, you think you have eternal life. But these are they which what? 
testify of me. <clears throat> this is a serious and deep charge that Jesus is laying right at the feet of the religious leaders. You have misunderstood your own prophets, your own psalms, your own proverbs, your own poetry, your own prophecy, he's saying. You do not know the truth of your own history and teachings. You dive into all the texts all over your scrolls, but you miss the point. The point is me. This was an indictment of the religious leaders of that day. It's an audacious claim that everything about the Bible was all about Jesus. Look at this. Look at this claim. See if this isn't audacious. Jesus says, I am the way. The way where? The only way to salvation. I am the truth. Friends, truth is not a subject. Truth is a person. And I am the life. There is not a breath you take without God sustaining you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. On the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13 to 35, tells us that story, but particularly in verse 27, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning who? Himself. Jesus is the correct understanding regarding the whole Bible. The books of Genesis to Malachi point forward to him as the Messiah and the Savior. <coughs> I'm almost done. In more ways than one, you've got that right. The books from Matthew to Revelation point to him as a fulfillment written in the Old Testament. And the, in the vernacular of the story that I just told you this morning, what Jesus is saying is this. You are all about the rind, but wait until you get to the inside, because it's all about me. <clears throat> is it possible that today, we right here, in 2023, could be in danger of misunderstanding our own faith? gnawing away at the rind and missing what's inside of the orange. The center part is the juicy part that awaits all of us. <coughs> the second passage is found in 2 Corinthians 3, 13 and 16. Would someone just like to read that for me, please? Can someone read that so I can save my voice? So according to Paul, how is the veil taken away? I gave you a clue in red. As soon as you put Jesus where he belongs, which is at the center, the veil is taken away. 
these two texts, textual indictments were <coughs> that the religious leaders had misunderstood their own faith. We had a similar situation like this in our own Seventh-day Adventist denomination when we were first developing as a, as a group. <coughs> this is an interesting history. As it is well documented by the history books, there was a worldwide movement in the 1800s called the Great Religious Awakening. And that was worldwide, all over the world. <coughs> it included every single religion. That awakening developed in the 1830s called the Millerite Movement, which eventually led to the formation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Because Daniel and Revelation had predicted many of these religious advances, the early pioneers began to discover exciting and new truths that had been lost for centuries because of the dark ages and doctrinal error and misrepresentations about God. Truths like the Sabbath and the state of the dead and the sanctuary. They became so thrilled and energized by the uncovering of these biblical truths that they created a PowerPoint of their day. I have, thank you. I do, thank you. Which was a chart called the way of life. Here is a picture of that chart. And it was used by all the circuit preachers of that day. However, after it was published in 1876, the editor of, this, of most of the materials in that day, James White, realized that there was something wrong missing in this picture. <clears throat> so he recommissioned another one, but he died in 1881. And he never saw the new one. The new one was printed in 1883. Why had James White recommissioned a new printing of this important chart? Because they got so excited about rediscovering these old doctrines that in the process, they were leaving out Jesus. By the way, there was a grand re, uh, emphasis on righteousness by faith later on in 1888. But here is the picture of the recommissioned one. Notice the difference? Nothing's changed, right? All the things that are there are in that picture. But what's changed? Jesus is at the forefront. There was nothing wrong with the accuracy and the content of the doctrines. But if your doctrines and content don't point to Jesus, then they're just information. What Jesus had commented on and what Paul pointed out is the same thing that the early Adventists initially missed, but they eventually got it right. <clears throat> they had primarily understood the significance of the doctrines and theology, placing the emphasis on the beauty of their truth instead of where they derived their beauty from, Jesus. The early pioneers began to realize that Jesus is the thing. <coughs> this is my last slide.
So many times, friends, we think that we have to do something to get God's favor. Nothing could be further from the truth. We already have God's favor. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can say against for any God, for anyone or God that will change his mind about you. God loves you unconditionally. God is love. This is his nature. This is his character. The starting place is you already have God's favor. (coughs) The only reason anyone will be lost and lose out on heaven is because they rejected his love. There is nobody who needs you or wants you more than Jesus. He's crazy about you. The only way that you can be satisfied in this life (coughs) is to stick with God's heavenly formula of love. There is a hole in your heart that only Jesus can fill, which is his love. But listen to me carefully. There is a hole in the heart of God that only you can fill. This is your response to his love. Just as much as you need him to make you happy, he needs you just as much to make him happy. So I can understand that because Rad joked about it at the beginning, which is always fun. I, I love my son. <coughs> and I'm going to say it here. There is only a place that Rad can fill. There's only a place that Kelly can fill. There's only a place that Lori can fill. And Caleb, and Caitlin, and all the rest of my family, and Kevin, and you all. Have you ever thought about the fact that you fill that void in God's heart? He loves you that much, folks. Father, thank you so much for this message. Never gets old. It's fresh, it's new every time we read it and study it. That we serve a God who loves us beyond himself. Who demonstrated that love on Calvary. Help us, Lord, to appreciate you more and more each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.